Good morning. The sermon text today is Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 8 through 16. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell you that you tell him I am lovesick. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousand. His head is like finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. That is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Thank you, Christina. Good morning to everybody. Um, to those who regularly come here, I'm sure maybe one of you at least is texting Stan right now wondering what is going on. He's uh, preaching out of this strange book called Song of Solomon, and he has six points in his worship folder. Stan, are we going to get out of here on time? You know, do I need to cancel my lunch plans? Don't worry. Uh, I, you will get out of here just on time as usual. Uh, so you, we will beat the Baptist to the Golden Corral wherever you have uh, lunch plans. But uh, secondly, um, as far as this book goes, the, the Song of Solomon, um, I know we don't typically hear a sermon out of this, out of this book, and, and, I, and I get it. I mean, there's stuff in, in here, even maybe that was read, that would cause us to, to giggle, you know, a little bit. I mean, if Rachel said some of this stuff about me, I would think she's calling me names or something, you know. I wouldn't really take it as a compliment, but in that time, uh, what this woman is doing is she's taking some of the things in their culture they would consider uh, beautiful and lovely, and she applied it uh, to, her, to her husband. And I believe with a lot of commentators that the, the book of the Song of Solomon, although it describes a marriage between a, a man and, and his wife, it ultimately points to the greatest marriage of Christ in his church. Many verses, such as uh, the Good News verse that was read from Revelation 19, they describe the relationship between Jesus and believers as a marriage. I mean, pretty remarkable verse in Ephesians um, 5, Paul quotes from Genesis when God describes marriage and how it's a man leaving his household to cling to his wife, to become one flesh with her. And Paul says that that is actually talking about the mystery between Christ and his church. Because Jesus did that exactly. He left his household in heaven and he came to cling to us and he does that by becoming one flesh with us. All healthy marriages, they're really just a small reflection of Jesus and his bride. And, and the bride of the bridegroom in Song of Solomon chapter 5, she is describing the person she is married to. Why does she, why does she do that here in this, in this passage? Well, because there are people around her asking her, who is your beloved? 
that we should notice him. I mean, you want us to look for your husband? How does your husband stand out from anybody else? Then the spouse just goes off and she just begins to describe how her husband is different than anyone else. And that right there is evangelism. That is Matthew 10. You say, what do you, what do you mean? Well, look, if, if you were here and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, our culture is going to ask you the very same questions that they asked this woman. Who is Jesus more than anyone else? Who is your God that you love and you worship? How is that God different from any other God of any other religion? How does he stand out from them? And like this woman's response here, who she just, you know, kind of explodes from her heart about her love for her husband, that should be like our response to unbelievers who ask for the hope that is within us. Evangelism should be an explosion of the heart of our love to Christ. Evangelism should be an overflow of our hearts, that we are so filled with Jesus and our love to him that it just spills out upon other people that we come in contact with. If you were visiting with us last week, we started a series from Matthew 10 called Gathered and and Sent. And Stan mentioned how we are first gathered to Jesus before we are sent for Jesus. And today, in light of Matthew 10, and being gathered to Jesus, I thought it would be good for us to look at this person that we're gathered to. Who is this Jesus that we are to speak to a lost and to a dying world? This morning, I want us to, cons- to talk to you concerning the loveliness of Christ. I would like us to just rest our busy and active minds and hearts and to just stop for a minute and to just admire Jesus, not just his hands, but his face. That we, don't, that we just don't admire the garden that he made, but that we admire the gardener. Who is he? At times I believe that little uh, times in the church, little is spoken of, of Jesus' person. We give much attention to his saving work, which is great, but, but oftentimes little is spoken about the person of Jesus. And in order for us to, to, to think upon Jesus, we need to have the right spiritual glasses or the right spiritual lenses to view him. Because your experiences are not the infallible glasses that you need to look to Jesus. Your friends' experiences of Jesus are not the infallible glasses to look to Jesus. Your present performance right now is not the lens that you need to view Jesus. And though our personal experiences and our walks with him are very important, those lenses can be dusty at times because of sin, because of, you know, trials that we are in. And so we can at times begin to doubt the view that we have of Christ. So what do we need? Well, we need the clear and flawless lens to look at Jesus. And God has provided that through the scripture. We We have this perfect guide here that the Holy Spirit has formed for us to put on these glasses and to gaze rightly at Jesus. So in this chapter here, we have a woman whose heart 
is so swollen in love with her beloved that she just goes off describing who he is and, and how attractive he is. And there are times, perhaps, you know, when you, when you talk to a, a wife and she describes how great her husband is, and you're like, I just really don't see that, you know, with your husband. But when the Holy Spirit, through the church, describes Jesus, it's not up for debate. I mean, when, when the church describes Christ through the scriptures, he is exactly what he is described to be and so much more. He is altogether lovely. There was a time I uh, was in Hawaii and uh, on the big island called Kona, and there's a, a mountain called Mount Mauna Kea, and it's 14,000 uh, feet the top is. And it's literally, you can see the top and you can see the clouds. So my friends thought it would be a great idea uh, to sleep all night on top of the mountain, which turned out to be a terrible idea. Uh, because when you, in Hawaii, you know, you're in this, on the beach, and it's hot, and we didn't think about it, but when you go all the way up to the top, it gets pretty cold, you know, 14,000 feet. And so we stayed up there all night, uh, and it was the worst sleep I've had in my life. I mean, we were so cold. We went from hot to freezing temperature. And when we woke up, there was, like, snow uh, on the mountain, and quite a shock to the body. But when I woke up, uh, we were just watching the sun come up. And all of a sudden, the, all the clouds that were on the mountains, they just began to roll away. And the sun came out. And it was one of the most beautiful views I've ever seen in my life. And perhaps here, you know, just think about the most beautiful sunset you have seen or, or the most beautiful landscape or even a painting. I mean, what makes that painting, that image so beautiful? It is, it is the entirety of it, right? For example, when you look at a painting, it's not just one stroke of, of the painting that makes it beautiful, but it's every detail, it's every line, it's every color that makes up the entire painting that makes it look so beautiful. And in the same way, every part of Jesus, every motion of his heart, Every act of his salvation, everything that he does, he is altogether lovely. Every part of him. In the human heart, we have a longing for beauty. We crave beauty. I mean, why is it that people spend thousands, if not hundreds of dollars, traveling to places each year just to catch a sight of beauty? you know, of the ocean or the Grand Canyon or the mountains. And looking at that site in Hawaii, it was so amazing. But there are no beauties of creation that can truly satisfy our insatiable hunger for that. Christ alone can satisfy our hunger for beauty. Every, lar every lovely part of his creation is just a shadow of who he is. He is the pearl of great price. He is the chief among ten thousands. He is matchless in his perfection and in his love. He is so lovely that if Jesus this morning were to reveal all of his beauty to you, you're, you would explode. You couldn't handle it. I mean, that's part of why we need new bodies in the new creation, to be able to look at his, his beauty because our minds couldn't comprehend it. So let us look at the loveliness of Jesus. Why is he so lovely compared to other uh, so-called gods of other religions? 
Well, first of all, Christ is lovely because he is the God-man. In some mysterious way that we can't fully understand, Jesus is united to God and he is united to our humanity. He is excellent, he is glorious, and all of his beauty begins right here, that he is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is the meeting place of time and eternity. He is the intersection between earth and heaven. Just as Jacob's ladder was touching earth and touching heaven at the same time, so Jesus, as the God-man, touches God's deity and touches our humanity at the very same time. The incarnation, God becoming man, that is God's love for humanity because in that is the greatest gift God has given to us. We get a sight and an enjoyment of the God-man. In Jesus, we can actually see God in the flesh. I mentioned at the beginning how people travel all over the world to see beauty in creation. And some of those things people try to see, to knock out, is the, is the seven wonders of the world. Well, Jesus is the only person in this universe that is both God and man at the same time. Jesus is truly the wonder of the world. I mean, all the other seven wonders of the world are nothing compared to this remarkable mystery that God has become one of us. The Bible tells us that even angels are astonished by this. Even angels long to look into these things. Jesus, now, just think about it. We just looked at this at Christmas, but think about the incarnation, okay? Jesus created Mary, yet at the same time, Jesus is now in Mary's womb, going from the early stages of conception. The one who dwells in an approachable light now dwells in the dark womb of Mary. The upholder of the universe, the one who is upholding all of creation by the word of his power, is now in Mary being sustained by an umbilical cord. And at the same time, Jesus is sustaining Mary, who's sustaining him in the womb. When Jesus is born and Mary holds Christ in her arms, for the first time, earth is looking down into heaven. And for the first time, earth is looking up to, uh, or heaven is looking up to earth as Jesus looks in the eyes of Mary. It's why the Bible calls it the mystery of godliness. God, the fullness of God in a body. Now, just not to get too theological for you this morning, but just putting on your thinking caps, all right? There are two theological words that are good words to capture this. One of them is the transcendence of God. Transcendence means that God is high above us. It means that he is separate from creation. It means he dwells in a category all by himself. And then in the other hand, you have a word called imminence. Imminence speaks about God's nearness to us, how God draws near to his people. And so you have these two words, right? You have transcendence, you have God's nearness, God is high above us, but God is near us at the same time. 
The incarnation, it is the apex of these two concepts. In the incarnation, you have God drawing near in a way he never did in the Old Testament. My friends, this Jesus, this God in the flesh is so unique because no other religions has this idea. In all other religions, you have either a God who's transcendent or a God who's imminent, but you don't have both. For example, when I speak with Muslims and I evangelize to them, they have a God who is so transcendent, so high above his creation, they think it's blasphemous that their God, Allah, would ever become a human because he could never be part of his creation. And then on the other hand, you you speak with Mormons. Mormons believe that God the Father at one time was a human, and he became God, and you can become God one day. Mormons have such an earthly idea of the Father in heaven that he's really no different than any earthly father. He's just a little bit better than our earthly fathers. And so they have a God that's so imminent, so near to us, he's not transcendent anymore. But in true Christianity, it is the only religion that has both God transcendent and God near to us. He is lofty in his glory, but he is deeply, deeply personal with us. Jesus is glorious because we see in him the exact representation of God, and in him we see the perfection of humanity. All that God possesses in his nature, Jesus possesses. And all that we possess in our nature except for sin, Jesus possesses. Not only does the Bible teach that Jesus is God, but it teaches us that he is man. He was born, he grew, he lived, he ate, he drank, he even cried. In John 13, we see the God who fashioned the world by his, by his hands. Now in John 13, he is kneeling on the floor using those hands to wash the feet of his disciples. He is now taken on the form of a servant. Now if all that Christ did was just do those acts of you know, humility and interact with creation, I mean, that would be an amazing demonstration of his grace, but Christ does something even greater than that. He is a perfect savior for us because Jesus carries God's law that humanity could never carry. Jesus dies a death that we could never die. He pays a debt that he didn't owe and a debt that we could never pay. On the cross, Jesus as God conquers all of hell, all of sin, all of Satan, and all evil. Through the incarnation, God enters our experience. So whatever trial you've ever had, let me just tell you, Jesus understands. Jesus experienced pain and darkness that no human has ever experienced because he suffered the wrath of God on the cross. We have a high priest who is tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. Jesus needed God in a way that no man needed God, and he was forsaken by God on the cross. So he understands. He can sympathize with you. What a comfort the humanity of Jesus is this morning. There is no other religion in the world that compared to this Christ. Secondly, Christ is unchangeable. When we want to have an accurate view of Jesus, 
When we want to see him as lovely, we must think of him as unchangeable. We live in a world that is constantly, rapidly, you know, drastically changing. I mean, the question is, is anything eternally going to be the same here? The Christian can answer Jesus Christ. Everything else changes, but as Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's just say that Jesus was able to change for a minute. Let's just think about that. I mean, what if he were to be able to? Then what would all the descriptions in the Bible of Jesus be if maybe he could change? What comfort would we have reading this book? I mean, the Bible would kind of become irrelevant to us because Jesus' person might not be the same that was described a thousand years ago. His promises might not be true anymore, but the unchangeableness of Jesus is our great hope that he is today what he was then. In Exodus chapter 3, Jesus first reveals himself to Moses as the I am. And then in John chapter 8, he takes up that name and he says to the Pharisees, I am. And they want to stone him because he's claiming to be God. Jesus said, I am, because he is self-existing. He is unchangeable. While we, you know, fluctuate each year, we, we might be a different person right now, for better or for worse, than we were, you know, 10 years ago. All of us are changing. But you could put this title over the palace in heaven, above the king of kings. He is the I am, the I am. And I would suggest for you to go through the Gospel of John, go back and look at those seven I, I am statements that Stan walked us through And you can go through all of those, and you can know today that Jesus is true. What he described himself to be. He is the bread of life today. He is what you need to live upon. He is the door of the sheep. He's the only way to come to God. He is still the good shepherd who leads us by still waters and protects us from wandering from the fold of God. He is the true vine that makes us fruitful, that Any growth of holiness and grace that we have, it's only because we're engrafted in him. All spiritual life flows from him. I mean, we could go through all the seven I am statements and see his unfading glory and perfection. And in each one, there is no exaggeration. Do you ever look up to somebody? Perhaps it's a relative. Maybe it's a, you know, a sports entertainer. Maybe it's just a friend that you really admire and you have this thought, man, I wish this person, like, never changed. I, I wish this person was always the way they are right now. But, but then maybe years later, you, you see that person, and they're not the same. You know, their age has caught up to them. Their, their mind isn't as sharp. Their body's breaking down, and it's kind of sad to witness. But there is no need to fear this morning that Christ is going to be any different He he will always be the same in the future. Whatever he is, whatever he has been to the saints at any time, he is to us today. All the attributes that we're looking at and will continue to look at, they are what he is without any shadow or turning. These heavens and this earth will one day fade away like an old piece of clothing. All of your beauty, all of your fame, will one day blow away like a flower. But the beauty of Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we must move on, but, but keep that in your, in your heart as we rejoice in the unchangeableness of Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus is immensely patient. 
Think about the loveliness of Christ and his patience. There is no room for him in the inn, so he has to be born in a manger, in a barn. He goes to the temple to preach, and they thrust him out of the temple, and they almost try to throw him off of a cliff. Jesus comes to his hometown to preach, and even his own relatives are saying, is this, isn't this a carpenter? Who, who is this? Even his friends and his brothers do not believe him. He comes to his own, and his own receive him not. Think about the patience that Jesus displays when he ministers to people. Sometimes we see that Jesus is up all night praying, and very early in the morning, as he's going to again to pray with his father, his disciples come to him and say, look, people are looking for you, Jesus. Instead of Jesus saying, I don't want to be bothered with that right now. He was always so patient. Whenever people came to him, he never turned them away. His face was spit upon by the Roman soldiers. Usually when a person spits upon something, like the ground, we consider that place of no value to us. And yet they go and they spit upon the divine face of Jesus. He was blindfolded and he was struck in his face. And they say, prophesy, Jesus, who hit you? I mean, in a moment, Jesus could have consumed all of his enemies, and yet he didn't. What about us? We are so suddenly moved, so suddenly offended by the least insult that somebody gives to us. If the creator of the universe is so patient with his enemies, can we not learn from his patience? The same Jesus who was patient on earth is now the same Jesus who is patient in heaven, reigning on the throne of God. Think about that. Jesus right now, he sees all of the sin of this world at the exact same time, and yet he does not consume the earth by his holy wrath. If, if we, this morning, let's say we were to search out in this earth, and we were to find the most patient man walking on earth. If we were to take that man and place him on the throne of God, he would consume this world in a moment. His patience would not endure. And yet Jesus is so patient with us. He's patient even in our own lives. You know how many times you have avoided him. You know how many times he has called you and you've ran from him. You know how many times he's told you to drop a sinful habit and you continue in it and the Lord hasn't struck you down. How can we be so impatient with people when he's so patient with us? The patience of Christ that should refresh our souls. He, fourthly, he is never a cause for sorrow. Jesus is more beloved than any other beloved because he is never a cause for sorrow. In John 15, it says that they hated Jesus without a cause. I mean, they, people that hated Jesus didn't even have a reason to, to hate him and to put him on a cross. I've heard many times people say, you know, I don't go to church. Uh, you know, I don't believe in Jesus because one time this Christian offended me. Well, let me ask you a question. What can you say about Christ? How has he offended you? How has he ever given you cause to hate him? I mean, you can point to any other love in your life in some way or another, even your deepest earthly love, it has somehow caused you pain or hurt in your life. And God knows that for parents, you know, their children are greatly loved by them, but 
are not children sometimes the sharpest knife that a parent feels to their heart, whether it's by their, you know, willful disobedience or by their hurtful words to them? Even our closest friends, even our spouses at times, they have made cause to hurt us or to make us upset or angry. Every earthly rose has its thorn, but Jesus is a rose without any thorn. You will never be disappointed when your eyes are upon him. Your eyes will always be disappointed when your eyes are upon men, but they will never be disappointed when you look to Jesus. You never have to worry on his part. He will always be faithful to his church. Even the sufferings that happen in your life, that's not Jesus planning ways to get you. He's not trying to set up evil traps to say, how can I get that person to get really upset? Even in your suffering, he is working that out for your good. So even though like a, you know, a, something uh, like a quilt or something, you know, when someone's weaving it, on the back you can't see what they're doing. But at the front, when it's finished, you see this wonderful tapestry. That is what our sufferings are like. Jesus is forming something so wonderful in your life that you cannot see right now. He is never a cause for sorrow. Fifthly, he is the love of all loves. I say he is the love of all loves because no love is like the love of Jesus. There is nobody who loves like Jesus can. Our love at times, it, it's so inconsistent. You know, it's like the Florida weather. Our love sometimes it's cold. Other times it's hot. But Christ's love for his bride, it, it never goes up and down. It's never based upon her performance. His love is like himself. It's unchangeable. He has a providential love for his bride. She is the apple of his eye. His eye is always on his church. He sits upon the throne every day, watching her and guiding her, giving her water when she is dry, restoring her strength when she is weak. It says in Isaiah 58 that he makes us like a well-watered garden, like an overflowing spring. He is always providing love for us. Love is not just what Christ does, but love is who Christ is. We love objects based upon their attraction to us. Even our love to Jesus is based upon our attraction to Christ. But Christ does not love you that way. Christ does not look at you and say, oh, this person is so attractive or this person is so worthy of my love. Christ loves us because he loved us. We are so full of ourselves, though. I mean... We're, we're, we're arrogant, so that doesn't really shock us. We want to be loved based upon who we are. We don't want people to love us freely because of who they are. I mean, if you go home this afternoon and if you're married and you say to your spouse, you know, I just love you, and, and they say, oh, thank you so much, and, and you say, you know, and there, wait, there's more. Uh, I, don't, I don't love you because of anything in you. In fact, there's nothing in you that causes me to love you. I just love you because of who I am. I, I mean, see if that goes over well with your spouse. But Christ loves us because he loves us. We are arrogant. We want it to be, even at times, maybe we go the opposite way. We, we, we look at all of our sin, we look at the holiness of God, and, and we say, how could God possibly love me because of who I am? What have I done? 
But his love does not spring from your merit. It does not spring from your character. It springs from the heart of Jesus. He loves sinners that we could not save. And he loves sinners that we would never save. He loves us, not because of who we are, but in spite of what we are. He loved me before I was even born. He loved me before I even began my journey with him. And he knew what I was going to be like. He loved me before I even experienced grace. He loved me when he went to Calvary and bore all of my sin. He loves me now as I grow in grace. And how much he has to bear with me when I have grieved him by a thousand falls. And yet he continues to love me because we are his. He has never had one thought Not one thought in his mind towards his church. I wish I never died for her. Believer, he saw all of your shortcomings, all of your backsliding, all of your lukewarmness, all of your lack of love to him, and he still went to the cross. One writer says that Jesus goes more willingly to the cross than we go to him. Christ outloves the church. Christ outpursues the church. Christ outpassions the church. If you were to take all the love of the saints on earth right now and in heaven and you were to raise it to the throne of God, it would be like a drop compared to the love that Jesus has for his bride. Sixthly, he is lovely because he is the best of all and he is all that we need. Do you remember when the woman said to of her beloved, people asked her, what is your beloved more than more than others? And she said in verse 10 that her beloved is chief among 10,000, that he is distinguished about, above all others, meaning, meaning that there is none like him. And how much more joyful in our lives would we be if we were convinced of this truth, none like Jesus. He is the best of all. You know, the reason why the Apostle Paul can command you to rejoice always because it rejoice always in the Lord because of who he is. And later on in that same uh, book in Philippians, he says in Philippians 3 that he counts all of his righteousness that he's ever done, all of his reputation, all of the worldly gain of his achievements. He says, I count them all but rubbish. And the Greek is actually a lot stronger than that for that word. It actually means human refuse, Human done, waste. One time I was uh, in Cambodia, and a friend that was a missionary there, he took me to the slums of Cambodia. And, and it, I mean, it messed me up when I saw it, because, I mean, people literally are living in, in a dump there. Some people just live in this slum. I mean, they, there's garbage all around them. Their home is formed by garbage Kids are running around, you know, like all muddy, and their clothes are are, are very worn. It it was horrifying to see people live this way. And imagine, imagine a person born in that slum. All they knew was the smell of human waste. All they knew was eating garbage from the dump and the scraps that they could find. Then imagine one day that person leaves that slum and finds a beautiful oasis, and they smell flowers for the first time. They taste pure water for the first time. 
that person would never go back to the slums. That is what Paul is saying about his conversion with Jesus. I could never go back to smelling the filth of sin. I could never go back to what I was. He's saying, I have found something so lovely in Jesus that, he, that I possess. I have all that I need. I don't need fame. I don't need my own righteousness. I don't need the sin and its fleeting pleasure. I don't need people to think how great Paul is. I have Christ. I have him. Believer, how can you go back to living in the filth and dung of this earth when you have tasted the living, clean waters of Jesus? Christ is not only good, but he is the best. And he's not only the best, but he's the best of the best. He is a savior and he is a perfect one. He is everything that we need. Everything. When we sin, he is our righteousness. When we long for something that this world cannot satisfy, he is our bread from heaven that we are satisfied with. When we are alone, Christ is our closest companion. His friendship is closer than any other earthly tie because Jesus is the only person that you can go to and you can unpack all of your dirt, all of your sinful thoughts, all your actions from the day. You can go to him in the prayer closet and you can tell him all about it. You can't do that even with your closest friend. You can't do that with your spouse. But Jesus is a friend of sinners. When the believer is loaded down with sin, we hear Jesus say, Come to me, all you who are weary and I will give you rest. When you are burdened down by cares and troubles, we hear the Savior say, cast your burden on me, for I care for you. Isn't it amazing that we not only have a Savior who tells us to cast our sin upon him, but he also wants to take our cares too. Look at the history of the church. Look at the way to describe Jesus. In Psalm chapter 27, the verse that was read in our call to worship, David said, that one thing I seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In Psalm chapter 73, Asaph writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. Well, what about the history of the church since the Bible is written? written? Did the saints cool their love to Jesus, their interest in Jesus? Well, the real ones didn't. Martin Luther King and or Martin, sorry, Martin Luther, in one of his commentary on Galatians, he writes, In my heart reigns this one article, faith in my dear Lord Jesus. He is the beginning. He is the middle. He is the end of whatever spiritual divine thoughts I have, whether by day or by night. One of my favorite pastors in the past was a Scottish man named Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford endured tremendous suffering in his life, tremendous heartache. He, he, the very first two children he had, they, they died in infancy. And then not long after that, his wife contracted a terminal disease. It was awful. I mean, Samuel Rutherford said that she was in extreme torment day and night. This lasted 13 months that Rutherford had to watch this. And then she died in 1629. 11 years later, He remarried, and his wife would bear him seven children, while Rutherford buried all of them but one. He was imprisoned for months for the gospel, and during that time, he would pastor his church by writing to them letters. And if you can grab those, they're they're in print. They're one of the best things in Christian print today. 
How does a man in prison who has endured so much suffering in his life, how does that person describe Jesus? Well, this is what Samuel Rutherford said. If heaven and earth and 10,000 heavens were all in one garden of paradise, and there were all these roses and flowers and trees that came forth from the Almighty, yet you set there one flower, Jesus Christ, in the midst of that orchard of pleasure, one look of him, one view, one taste, one smell of his Godhead would infinitely exceed and go beyond the smell and the color and the beauty and the loveliness of all of that paradise. And then later he writes, Oh, worthy, worthy Christ, worthy, worthy loveliness, less of us and more of him. Believer, if someone were to ask you today, who is Jesus to you more than any other person? What would you say to them? Perhaps there are some here who would say, you know, well, Matt, I, I am not a speaker. I can't talk the way that pastors talk or even the way some of my friends talk. But look, you don't have to. You know, isn't it amazing that if you get that same person who says, you know, I can't really talk about Jesus the way other people talk, they can talk your, your ear off if you get them to talk about something they really love. I mean, we all have the ability to articulate our love to something. Perhaps the reason that we can't do that at times is we're not spending enough time to know him and to deepen our love to him. But look, here is the encouragement we find in Matthew 10. When Jesus gathers the first disciples to himself, I mean, they're nobodies. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're not pastors. They're not theologians. They were probably not very polished in their speech, but these are the people that Christ uses to change the world because these people were taken up with the beauty of Jesus. That gives us hope this morning because each of us here, each of us can play our part in evangelism. It's just like when you fill up a glass with water and you, and you try to walk with that glass. I mean, that water just kind of spills out. And in the same way, if you fill your hearts with Jesus, it's just going to spill out upon other people. So I ask you, are you love sick for Jesus this morning as that woman was for her beloved? Do you want more and more of him? If we can spend so much time being busy with all sorts of activities in our life, but we are not passionate about this one thing to know him, there is a great deal of idolatry happening. There is nothing greater in our lives. There should be nothing greater in the Christian life than knowing Jesus. And yes, it's not always perfect. Yes, our pursuit is not always there, but it should be constant. It should be there as a pattern. If Christ is infinitely lovely, lovely Christian, will you not work this coming year to know him more? Through your Bible reading, through prayer, through attending church service, through community groups, Let's be intentional in our friendships to make much of Jesus as we talk. In the Christian life, there's nothing greater than this. Well, as we close, I just want to address those who are here who claim to not even be, you know, believers. Lost person, you don't have to look for something new or better or different in the future to satisfy you. No matter which direction you look. Jesus is everything that you need. Has the world ever departed all to have you? Has the world ever died for you? The world is a veiled beauty. You take off the world's little veil, 
and it's ugly inside. It's fading away. But with Jesus, he has an everlasting beauty. It is greater. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Because in your short time of pursuing sin, I guarantee you, you could never look back and describe sin the way the Bible can describe Jesus. The way that believers can describe the faithfulness of Christ. Before coming to Christ, we were all looking for something wonderful and lovely. But then God opens up our eyes. We see the beauty of Jesus. We're enthralled by him. He becomes the great reality that trumps everything in our life. But we still go back to the office. We still go back to work or the school. But they're all in its place now. You can enjoy those things like you did before. But this time, Jesus is the one great reality over all those things. He is on the throne. And so whatever changing scene of life happens, his fullness remains the same. Let me just close by reading verses from my favorite hymn. It says, Jesus, Jesus, all-sufficient, beyond telling is thy worth. In thy name lies greater treasures than the richest found on earth. Such abundance is my portion with my God. In thy gracious face there's beauty, far surpassing everything. Found in all earth's great wonders mortal eye has ever seen. Rose of Sharon, thou thyself art heaven's delight. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Christ. God, we pray that if our hearts this morning are cold towards him, would you, Lord, by your spirit, inflame our hearts for Jesus? Would you help us, God, to be so enamored by him, to be so won by Jesus that others seeing us would see a life so taken up with our beloved. God, we ask this for your glory and for his name. Amen.